Well, good morning, Parkside family. What a great day. I mean, apart from the heat, right, but that's going to change soon. What an awesome day to be in the house of the Lord and to be with our family. I just love being here. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here at Parkside, and I have been looking forward to today for several weeks because I get to share with you what the Lord has laid on my heart. Now, I'm going to warn you, um, there's a very high probability that I'm going to get a little passionate and maybe even a little emotional, okay? Now, part of that's just me, because when I learn something new, I, it's just like it's exploding inside of me, and I just can't wait to tell somebody else whether they want to hear it or not, right? Sometimes I have to push people. But the other part is because our subject today is so glorious and so magnificent that it just makes you well up with passion, okay? We've been studying the Psalms, as we do every summer. Uh, this year, we've decided to put our attention on Book 1 of the Psalms. Now, for the last three weeks, we've been studying Psalms of Lament. And, and don't get me wrong, I love Psalms of Lament. They're some of my favorite because they describe how I feel so much of the time. But every once in a while, we need a little change of pace. And so today, we're going to be studying a psalm of praise. Psalm 33 is a psalm of praise. It's a beautiful psalm. And my hope is that when you leave here today, you are so excited about the God that you serve that you're ready to go out there and to conquer the world. Now, I'm going to give you a second warning. It still might push us out of our comfort zone just a little bit. Okay? That's generally what scripture does when we're really encountering it. But hang with me. So before I jump into the message, let's just have a word of prayer and ask God's blessing on our time together. Lord God, today you are so magnificent and so glorious and more than we can even comprehend. Lord, I thank you for your written word. I pray that we would treat it carefully, genuinely, and we would allow it to change us, Lord. May you be glorified and magnified above all. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we jump into the outline, I want to give you a little bit of a background to Psalm 33. As I said before, it's a psalm of praise, but we don't know much more about it than that. That's because this is one psalm, one of the three psalms in the book one of the psalms, that doesn't have that superscription. Right? A couple weeks ago, Pastor Steve taught us about the superscription. It's that header, that section that comes after the chapter title and before what we would generally call verse 1. It's that part of the psalm that tells us who wrote it and why, giving us some of the historical background and the context. Without it, we don't know much about the psalm. We don't know who wrote it. We don't understand the context. Not surprisingly, there are several theories and, and different thoughts on this. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and a lot of the other early manuscripts ascribe this psalm to David. And in fact, some people go so far as to say that Psalm 33 is actually connected to Psalm 32, that they're really like part one and part two. Psalm 32 is written by David, and so somehow maybe they're linked together. There is language that's in common between them. Others have a different opinion, and they say, well, we don't know for sure when it's written, 
Maybe it was written for an occasion, though, that would be celebrating the feasts, either the new moon feast or the autumn feast, for the, the communal worship in Israel. And it was just written by one of the other psalmists. So we really don't know. And to be honest with you, I don't have much of an opinion on it either. Uh, except to, to say that there is language in the psalm that David does use a lot, and so it does lend some credence to that. And we'll see some of that here in a little bit. What we do know for certain is that the subject of this psalm is God. It is Jehovah. His name is mentioned 13 times in these 22 verses. It's without a doubt that he's the subject. And the theme of this psalm is worship. Okay, Take a deep breath and relax. This is not another sermon on church music. Okay, We can all just relax. It's a psalm of worship. Worship does include music, but it's so much more. And so to be clear, let me define what worship is. Our English word worship comes from the phrase worth-ship. In other words, to describe worth, to declare the worth of something, to say what its value is, to lift it up and to make it supreme. And so to worship is to elevate something to its rightful position, to the value with which it should be valued. So when we say we're going to worship God, that means we're lifting him up. In other words, he's on a different level than we are. We're down here. He's up here. We're describing his worth. And we value him above all else. I think John Piper says it best. He says the inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. So it starts with the mind, right, affirming facts, then it changes the heart and our inherent will. And then finally, it has to result in some outward expression, but not just with the lips, but actions too. That's worship. Well, how important is worship to the church? He goes on to say this in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And by the way, we have copies of that in our resource center. But he says this, missions is not the ultimate goal the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more it's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So back to Psalm 33. <clears throat> We're going to see in this psalm the call to worship, number two, the cause for worship, and number three, the confidence we get from worship. So the call to worship, the cause for worship, and the confidence from worship. Number one, the call to worship. In these first three verses, 
right? This is where the psalmist is calling us to worship in these first three verses. He says to rejoice, to praise, to sing, to play music, play skillfully, and shout for joy, right? All words calling us to worship. All aspects of worship. Look more closely at verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. It's beautiful. The psalm starts out with an imperative, rejoice. And that word translated rejoice is the Hebrew word rana. Okay, rana. Now, I know that means nothing to most of us, including me. So I have a video that I want to use to help us learn what Ranan means, okay? So please direct your attention to the screen. Yes! Woo! Man, if you were there, you probably still remember the feeling, right? Wow! For a minute there, you're walking, pacing back and forth right on the sideline. This timeout is never going to get over. Come on. And you're wondering what's going to happen, right? You're looking at the scoreboard. Finally, the teams take the floor, and it feels like an eternity. When is this play going to happen? Maybe you can't even look, right? You're clenching nervously under the person next to you, your face buried. And the play just continues, and nothing, nothing seemed to be important. No one else is checking their cell phone to see what the headline is or the weather. No one's checking social media to see what their favorite celebrity is doing. That's it. This is the moment. And it felt like it was going to take forever. And then Jackson gets the, Jackson gets the ball. Okay, Jackson's got the ball, and when he went to shoot it, you're watching, I think it's going to go in, it looks good, I think it's going to go in, it's going to go in, it went in, woo! And I mean the emotion, right? It just washed right over you, and you couldn't contain it, and so people are high-fiving, and, and they're shouting, and they're running out on the floor in celebration. I mean, we've seen people do crazy things in these kind of moments, you know, like take the goalposts of ross Stadium and throw them into the Wabash, or, or burn cars, I mean, the emotions. Even the most stoic person among us, right, the most reserved person has to smile, clap, or yes, right? That's Ranan. That's what this word means. It's amazing. It's often and more accurately translated in the Old Testament as shout for joy. Yes. At the very least, it means to sing with loud and jubilant exultation. But some have suggested that it's better translated as yell. It's, it's a very strong expression for the liveliest of exultation, a joyous occasion. 
author and teacher Skip Moen has said this, it's so pitiful that we are stuck with the translation shout. Of course it does mean shout, but it isn't the exclamation of someone yelling from one side of the street. It's the cry of overwhelming emotions upon the discovery of holy joy in the God who saves. That's why it's so often linked with words like joy or, or sing praises. It's much more like the cry of awe and victory when the home team scores in the last second of the game. It's the summary word of all the Old Testament religion. That, that's why we don't find it in any other culture. It belongs only to the people of the Lord of hosts. He goes on to say, cry is totally insufficient. It's correct, but it's sterile. We need something much more dynamic. We need explosive joy. God is, and he is good. This isn't the only time that this word appears in Scripture. In fact, it's used 50 times in the Old Testament. Four in just the first book of the Psalms. So I thought it might be instructive for us to just to take a look at some of these other instances because I really want us to understand what this word means and I really want to understand what he's encouraging us to do. And so we're going to start in the Psalms, we're going to work our way out and spend just a second to do this. Obviously we can't look at all 50. So let's look at where else it's used in the Psalms. Psalm 511, but let all who take refuge in you, let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them, and may those who love your name boast about you. Psalm 25, 20, verse 5. Let us shout for joy at your victory, and lift the banner in the name of our God. May the Lord fulfill all your requests. Just one chapter ahead of where we are now, Psalm 32, 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, all of these were Psalms of David. The three that we just read were Psalms of David. And so David encourages often to shout for joy. I don't think we should be surprised by this, because that's the way God, that David worshipped. You remember when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem? We can read about it in 2 Samuel 6. Starting in verse 12, it says, we, It was reported to King David, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belonged to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of ram's horn. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter Michael looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So let's look at a few other places in Scripture where it was used. The first time is actually Leviticus 9, and uh, I think we can learn a lot about a meaning of a word based upon its first use. So Leviticus 9, this is where the Levitical law had just been given, and Aaron and his sons are being installed as priests. So let's, let's read Leviticus 9. We're going to read 1 and 2 just to kind of set the stage. And then we'll move on to another part of the chapter. It says, On the eighth day Moses summoned Aaron his sons 
And the elders of Israel, he said to Aaron, take a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and present them before the Lord. Moses and Aaron then entered the tent of meetings. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came down from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell face down. That shouted, that's Ronan, right? Are you kidding me? Fire from heaven? I can't imagine. That would definitely invoke a response of shouting. I doubt anybody was standing there like, eh. Right? I mean, wow, that's the word, that's Ronan, shout for joy. Let's look at a few more examples. The book of Isaiah, Isaiah 12, 6. Cry aloud and shout for joy, inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 44, 23. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and Israel. He has shown forth his glory. He said the heavens. He said the lower earth and everything in them. The most stoic objects you can imagine are mountains and trees. And yet even they will break forth in joyful shouts. The last time this word is used in the Old Testament is Zechariah 2.10. And this is really cool. Okay, Zechariah 2.10, second from the last book in the Bible. It reads this. Daughter Zion, shout for joy and be glad. For I am coming to dwell among you. This is the Lord's declaration. Right? Did you catch that? This is directly from God. He says to shout from joy. He says to break forth in jubilant exultation. Why? Because he's going to live with us. The Almighty God is going to come down. And he did. What a time to celebrate. So our psalmist says, shout for joy. That's what he's calling us to do. Rejoice in the Lord. Break forth in jubilant celebration just like we did when Jackson hit that three, but yet so much more. Next question then is, well, who's the us, right? Who, who, who is he calling to break forth? And the text says, you righteous ones. It's the righteous that should be breaking forth. Who are the righteous, right? That's the next question. Who are the righteous? Well, we know from Scripture that really, inherently, no one is. There are none righteous, except those who God declares righteous, who God justifies. And so the Old Testament concept of righteousness includes justification by faith in God. But there was also this aspect of, of communion with God and responsiveness to his will. Okay, So I'm saved by his grace, but I have this desire to be in fellowship with him, to be communing with him, to respond to his will, to please him. That's the righteous. That's who he's calling here. Why the righteous? Well, because those are the people who have seen God and who have been saved by God. 
I mean, think back to the video, right? The only people who were excited there were the Patriots fans. The other team left discouraged and disappointed, defeated. But the Patriots fans were excited because that's the side they're on. These are our people. This is our team. And we won. And so they celebrate. If the righteous don't praise God, who else will? The unrighteous are not going to praise God. And so it's the righteous who have been called to break forth in praise. Now, one more thing here from verse 1. Notice what he says about worship. Praise from the upright is beautiful. It's not neat, not cool, or kind of nice. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Some of the other translations, like the ESV, I think they get it a little bit wrong because they say things like, like fitting. Well, yeah, it's fitting. But my understanding of this word beautiful, it's the same word that Solomon uses in the book of Song of Solomons to describe the face of his lover. Right? So, you know, I'm not going to look at my wife and say, your face is fitting. <laughs> it's fitting. No, it's beautiful. Praise from the righteous is beautiful. Why? Well, first, it's because it's what God deserves. Right? It's, that's the idea of worship. He is supreme, and he will be lifted up, and that's what he deserves. And second, it's because that's what we were created to do. We'll be doing it for eternity. And lastly, it's because it's contagious. It's a beautiful thing to be in the midst of people who have joy. So that's our call to worship. Our second point is the cause for worship, the cause for worship. And if you notice something about every passage that we read in which the people were called to shout for joy, or they did shout for joy, they have one thing in common. They had seen God do something, or they had seen God be described. So if I were going to speak like a scientist, I'd say worship is the effect, and God is the cause. The cause for our worship is God himself. And so, in verses 4 through verse 19, our psalmist is going to take us through a progression. He's going to show us who's, who God is. He's called us to worship, and he says, this is the reason why you should worship, and I'm going to point you to who God is. And so he shows us various duties, um, roles or responsibilities that God fulfills, and then he's going to kind of talk us through the attributes of God that go along with those. And so in verses 4 to 5, we're going to see that he basically describes God as himself, talk more about that. And then in verses 6 to 9, he's going to show us God as creator. Verses 10 to 12, he's going to show us God as the ruler. And then verses 13 through 19, he's going to show us God the protector. Okay, and so let's look at these now as we glorify God together. Starting in verse 4 and 5, it says, for the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. Now, I call this God as himself because this is who God is in his very essence. This is God who God has always been. This is who God will always be. And this is who God would have been had he chosen not to create or bring mankind into this world. 
The psalmist doesn't give us a complete list, but he does mention his righteousness, his justice. God's righteousness is related to his holiness, but it is slightly different. Holiness carries with it this aspect of separation, to be distinct, separate from, totally other. Righteousness has to do with the law and morality and justice. To say that God is righteous is to say that God always acts in accordance with what is right. God never does what is wrong. Moreover, he himself is the final standard of what is right. As a result of God's righteousness, it is necessary that he treat people in accord with what they deserve. That is what we call justice. God never fails to reward those to whom reward is due, and he never punishes people more severely than they deserve. He always operates justly. He never does anything unjust. The late theologian R.C. Sproul had this to say, God never punishes innocent people, but he does redeem guilty people. Hallelujah! Our psalmist goes on to say that the earth is full of his unfailing love. In general, God's love means that he's always giving of himself to others in order to bring about blessing or good. Here the psalmist adds the word unfailing or faithful. The ESV uses the word steadfast, the steadfast love. I mean, it's all over scripture, 248 times. In the Old Testament, the steadfast love, the unfailing love, the faithful love. Over half of those are in the book of Psalms. And three times in this chapter, the word unfailing literally means to bend or to bow, to come down to our level. This is God's condescending love for his chosen people. He came down to our level to love us. And the Bible portrays God's love as a reasoned-out love his covenant-keeping love. He's decided to do it. It's not merely emotionally based. It's a love that gives irrespective of the worth of the object, and even though that object may never reciprocate it. Wow. It should bring us great joy to know that the God of the universe decided to love us and to constantly give himself to us to bring us joy and happiness. Hallelujah. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as night, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains, high soaring above, thy clouds, which are fountains of goodness and love. The next picture of God that we see here from our psalmist is that of Creator. Look with me at verses six to nine. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. Wow! That's our God. And to say that God is creator implies two things. 
First, it says he has the power to create. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. That means his power is infinite. He's able to do all his holy will, even with just a word. And he never gets tired. It doesn't exhaust him to create the world. Regarding God's power, Stephen Charnock, a great theologian, said this. The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. How vain would eternal counsel be if power did not step in to execute them? Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity. His promises, an empty sound. His threatening, a mere scarecrow. God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, or frustrated by the creature. Hallelujah! There's a second implication from him being creative. He owns it all. It's all his. He's in control, right? We are merely creatures brought into existence by him. We belong to him. Everything does, even those who refuse to acknowledge it. The third aspect that we see here is God as ruler. These are in verses 12 or 10 to 12. So let's look at these verses. Psalmist said that the Lord frustrates the counsels of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. But, right, there's a, there's a but in there. On the other hand, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen to be his possession. Once we understand that God is the all-powerful creator, it seems reasonable to conclude that he preserves and governs the entire universe. The God who created the world continues to rule over it. God's exercise of power over his creation is also called God's sovereignty. God has the absolute right and the freedom to do with his creation as he desires, according to all his purposes and will, in any way he wants, at any time he wants, to anyone he wants, and that he alone has the power to carry it out. Theologian Lorraine Botner said this, By virtue of the fact that God has created everything which exists, he is the absolute owner and final disposer of all that he has made. He exerts not merely a general influence, but actually rules in the world which he has created. The nations of the earth and their insignificance are as the small dust of the balance when compared with his greatness. And far sooner might the sun be stopped in his course than God be hindered in his work or in his will. Amid all the apparent defeats and inconsistencies of life, God actually moves on in undisturbed majesty. Even the sinful actions of men can only or can occur only by his permission. And since he permits, not unwillingly, but willingly, all that comes to pass, including the actions and ultimate destiny of men, it must be, in some sense, in accordance with what he has desired and purposed. Wow. 
What a cause for celebration. The universe is not governed by impersonal fate or luck. We are not left up to chance. It is an all-powerful, righteous, and just God. And he cannot be thwarted. He cannot be stopped. His purposes will stand, and his plans will be accomplished. We have no reason to fear evil. Hallelujah. Matthew 10, 28-31, Jesus says this. He says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. So do not be afraid. You are more valuable than sparrows. The fourth picture we see of God is God as protector. We've seen God as himself. We've seen God as creator. We've seen God as a ruler. And now we see him as protector. Right? As a creator, he has the right to rule. As ruler, he is able to protect. Let's look at verses 13 through 19. psalmist says, the Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the hearts of them all. He considers all their works. A king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for, for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. But look, the Lord keeps his eyes on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. When I read these verses, I'm confronted with three truths. First of all, God is interested enough in the affairs of mankind to even look down. Wow, right? I mean... Some people have suggested that he just winds up the clock and he goes about his business and does something else. No, he is interested. He is looking down. Wow. Second, he's able to look down and see everything. So from the splendor of his throne room, he's able to look down and watch over the affairs of mankind. That relates to his omnipresence, right? That God is not confined by space. He's not limited to a place. And third, he doesn't look down out of mere curiosity. You know, like, huh, I wonder what's going on down there. He's involved. He's ruling. He's protecting. He's protecting those who depend on his faithful love. There it is again, faithful love, unfailing love, steadfast love. The righteous who depend on his faithful love are protected by the creator, the ruler, and our protector. That doesn't make you shout for joy. I don't know what else will. Wow. No one is above his ken, beneath his notice, or beyond his grasp. He looks not as an idle spectator, but as a ruler. Some people may look to military strategies to save, right? Like, like horses and kings and armies or tanks or planes or nuclear missiles. But it is the Lord that is sovereign over them all. He alone can save and alone can bring to nothing. Hallelujah. O oh, worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing his wondrous love. 
our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilion and splendor, and girded with praise. Oh, tell of his might and sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space, his chariots of wrath, the deep thundercloud form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. Frail children of dust, and feeble as frail, and thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Thy mercy, how tender, how firm to the end. Our maker, defender, redeemer, friend. Right? So we've seen the call to worship. We've seen the confidence of worship. God himself, right? I'm sorry, the, the cause for worship, God himself. The last point is the confidence from worship. Let's look to see how this psalm concludes. Psalm 33, 20 through 22. We wait for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love, there it is again, your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. The psalm begins with a shout, and it ends with a quiet confidence. Notice the pronoun we. The psalm is now speaking about the community, the group of righteous who assemble together. We. And he says, we will wait. We will trust. We will hope. That's confidence. That's certainty. And, and how can they be so sure? Well, because they know God. They've seen him work. He, he's the creator. He's the ruler. He's the protector. They have nothing to fear. They worship the God who is the creator, the ruler, and the protector. That's our God, too. He's our God, too. He's still himself. He's still the creator. He's still the ruler. And he's still the protector. Look, the, the point of worshiping God with energy and joy is not to feel good or to have some amazing experience. The end result of true worship is stronger faith, a deepening relationship with God, and a desire to continue to lift him up and to value him above all else. So we've seen the call to worship the cause for worship, and the confidence that we get from worship. At this point, you're saying, oh, what am I supposed to do with this? What do I do? Some of you may be saying, Scott, what are you saying? What are you expecting of us? Have you gone loopy? Maybe it's best if I start by saying what I'm not saying what I'm not advocating, okay? I'm not advocating an environment of complete chaos. You know, where people are rolling down the aisles or upending the communion tables or smashing the offering boxes. I'm, I'm not advocating that. I'm not advocating for fake emotions or emotionalism or, or anything where we conjure up something just to try to get people to feel a certain way or, or people who feel like they have to feel a certain way. I'm not saying that. 
I'm not saying that I want people to put on a show just to make the neighbor think that they're more spiritual, they're more in tune with God than they really are. Maybe it's best if I, if I describe it like this. For the last 10 years or so, I've, I've taken part and played in the, in the praise team. I'm kind of sad to say that when I plug the headphones in my ears and I'm so focused on my music so that I don't make a mistake that I kind of get dis disengaged. I, I kind of forget what's going on around me. And, and so, you know, I'm not always observing. Kind of, kind of sad. A couple months ago, I decided to take a little bit of a break. Some things changed, so I stepped back, and I've spent now most of my time sitting out here, right, for the duration of the service. A couple weeks ago, probably the first one or two weeks that, that I sat out there, we, we, we came through the sermon, we went into our time of communion, we went into the song time, and I looked around, and it didn't seem like anybody was excited. I, I didn't see joy. We, we had just seen God proclaim through his word. There was no excitement. We had just encountered Jesus, and it felt like everybody was bored. At that time, I'd already picked Psalm 33. I'd already said I was going to preach it. I'd already begun studying it. The Lord was changing my heart, showing me a bunch of new things. I got to say, I was a little sad. Look, I, I, I understand. There's differences in culture. There's differences in personality. The Hebrew culture may have just been a lot more of an exciting culture than we are. I, I get it. And personalities change. I understand. Some, some people, it's really easy. Some people, it's really hard. It's hard for me. Right? Like many of you, I have trained myself over the course of my life to suppress my emotions, especially in church. Get those feelings of excitement when I see God do something, but it's like I don't want to let it out. So, so I'm not judging you. Please, I'm not judging you. I don't know what's happening on the inside of anyone. Maybe you are feeling this way. And my encouragement was don't be afraid to let it out, to show some joy. At least smile. Right? Act like you're happy. Act like you want to be here, like you love God. And look, I know that seasons of life change, right? There are times we feel excited and there's times we don't. I've been there. David's been there. I mean, we just got done studying three psalms of lament. David didn't feel like doing it either. But it's all the more reason for the rest of us to do it. Because I tell you what, when I am discouraged and I am down in the dumps, I need people around me who have joy, right? I want to be with God's people. I want their joy. It's infectious. It's contagious. Rub off on me. Get me prepared to go see the world and to conquer it for him. Smile. I would say this. If you have never in your life felt that overwhelming sense of emotion when you see the work of God, then maybe you haven't seen the work of God. And don't leave here today until you have. There'll be people down here on front 
ready to talk to you, show you who, who God is from his word. I'll be in the back. You can come talk to me. We'll show you who God is. Our psalmist invites us to rejoice, and I think it's biblical. The Bible is full of examples from cover to cover of people who have seen the magnificence of God and all his majesty and all his splendor, and they've watched him work and rule and protect and to save, and they just can't help it but let it out. This is what we were created to do, and the psalmist says it's beautiful. So Parkside, shout for joy. Our God cares. Our God saves. Our God loves us. Break forth in praise. You are no longer desperately lost in your sin. You have hope, right? You have hope. He has turned his face on us. And now we go to our time of communion. Right? This is the time where we reflect on the things that we hear. Whether you know it or not, our, our service is structured. We have a liturgy. We encounter God through the preaching. We reflect on God and what we learn through the table. And then we respond to God with our time of singing. Look, we don't just sing because that's just what you do. You know, it's not like we're looking to say, well, what can we do to fill up an hour where we can sing? No, right? Focus on the words. We try to pick songs that are theologically appropriate. The songs we open the service with, right? We will wait on the Lord. We will wait on the Lord. We will wait on the Lord. It's exactly what we see in Scripture. This is our time to allow some of that emotion of seeing God save and work and who he is. Verse 3, it says, we didn't look at this, but it says a new song. Each new act of God in the history of redemption is a new occasion for praise. And every song of praise should emerge from a renewed heart that brings a new awareness of God's grace. New mercies demand new praise. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, you are great. Wow, we are so unworthy to call you our Father. We are so unworthy to be heirs with Jesus. But by your faithful love, which you have promised to give, and by your power and your rule, you are faithful to give. Lord God, our strength and our defender, we ask that your unfailing love rest on us as we go through life today and we go through the world this week and we encounter Satan and the difficulties and the distractions, may we rest on you. We will hope in you. We will trust in you, Lord God, for you are great. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.